Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. How difficult is it to hack into the U.S. election system? Well, according to one report, Florida's Department of State has criticized an experiment to thwart hackers because an 11-year-old hacker needed only 10 minutes to bust into a replica site and make it look like the wrong candidate had won a presidential election. Here to tell us more about the situation is Clint Watts. He is a senior fellow for the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He is also a senior fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at George George Washington University. He was previously an infantry officer in the United States Army, executive uh, officer of the Combating Terrorism Center at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and a former FBI official. Clint Watts. Should we just go back to paper ballots? Yeah, it would seem that way, doesn't it? I, it, it? It's amazing that our tech, you know, we should expect it to be able to return a vote very quickly and, and to do that efficiently. But it is almost impossible to secure it if it has any sort of connection to the web. And at the same point, we're relying on just a few programmers to try and prevent thousands or even, you know, hundreds of thousands of potential hackers out there over time from breaking into systems. So we're in a tough spot. And I think the important thing for America is that we have some sort of audit trail and paper ballot backups so that we can verify a vote. Because we've seen this happen, particularly uh, Ukraine, for example. Uh, Russia had hacked into the system there. And the Ukrainians uh, caught it before it went live. But we will always have this threat. And as long as we have candidates that are also, also echoing that maybe we can't trust the vote, we're going to have these sorts of problems over the horizon. You know, Pim raised a good point, which is there are these tests and studies being done of just how compromised the U.S. electoral system really is right now. And I have to wonder, especially as we head into the midterm elections, just how far have hackers gotten? How how pervasive uh, has some of the influence already been? And are you worried about the integrity of these elections? I'm not so much worried about the integrity as much as the perception of the integrity. And by what I mean by that is it actually is, you know, fairly difficult to change the votes. We have a lot of people looking at it, but we still have about five states, it sounds like, that don't have a a sufficient audit trail or a, a paper ballot backups that we can verify. What I'm more nervous about, though, is the perception or the casting of doubt about the integrity of elections. We saw this in 2016 uh, when we were watching Russian influence uh, when I, I was studying this. The second wave was really about making people nervous that democracy isn't true or that their votes didn't count. And we're seeing that come up again in 2018. We're already worried about it now months in advance. But looking forward, we're hearing candidates say that the vote is going to be rigged or the election is rigged against me. That sort of doubt uh, is almost impossible. And even if you didn't change a vote, let's say you just took a preemptive hack, you just made it look like you hit a voter database or you changed something and then dumped it out online, that would create widespread doubt in the electoral system. That's an attack on democracy, and it really under undermines the trust and integrity in both our elected officials and our institutions. 
Clint Watts, do you believe that any conversation or communication is secure, particularly if it takes place in the White House? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I, I would have said yes up until 2016. Now I just don't know. We've seen unprecedented things in the last two years. Uh, one example is the Russian foreign minister uh, Lavrov going into the Oval Office without any U.S. media there, but there was Russian media there. Uh, we've seen cases in Helsinki where the president is talking with Vladimir Putin one-on-one and there's no witnesses, and we don't know what the electronic situation was there. And then this Omarosa tape that, yes. that came out in the last week. These are all unprecedented things. And so I don't have confidence right now in terms of communications uh, the way I did pre-2016. I just know working in the government, you didn't take a cell phone in anywhere or a recording device in anywhere. Uh, so it's pretty startling to see these revelations come forward if they're true. And just to be clear, Omar, uh, Omaroso uh, Manigault Newman, she was a former White House advisor who got fired uh, and is releasing tapes that she made of President Trump. Uh, and she is saying that she has more that she will release. Uh, President Trump has a couple of colorful tweets in response, for example— I'll read you the latest one. Well, I know it's not presidential to take on a lowlife like Omarosa. And while I would rather not be doing so, this is a modern day form of communication. And I know the fake news media will be working overtime to make even wacky Omarosa look legitimate as possible. Sorry. So what is the possible consequence other than being this sort of soap opera that everybody's following? What is the potential security consequence of have somebody taping the current president in the White House? and potential advisors. Uh, what is the security concern here? Yeah, well, as we talked about with the uh, 11-year-old that maybe hacked into a simulated voting machine, we don't know who's hacked into those devices. Uh, John Kelly, the chief of staff, there was another point just a few months ago where there was reporting that his personal phone had been compromised at one point or hacked into. Uh, we know the president uh, tweets a lot, and so he's carrying around a device as well. And so all of these security protocols, if they're not being followed through on, provide an open window, uh, you know, either in terms of access via microphone, uh, email, or even possibly video at some point into our government. And this is just unprecedented. Usually, I, I know working at the FBI and even with the military, you leave your phone in the car, you leave it at the door, checked into a box. And so this is the highest uh, pinnacle of our government. And we have people carrying around devices, not only using them uh, in places maybe they shouldn't be, but using them to record each other. Just think the erosion of trust on that staff right now, if you thought you were being recorded by your coworkers, or you couldn't openly discuss policy or move forward, it, it slows down the wheels of government uh, at every single level. And it also probably makes longtime civil servants in our country very nervous to not be sure that they can openly and discuss uh, policy freely with leadership without maybe being recorded by one of their colleagues or somebody in the administration. It's a really dark time in terms of personal trust inside the White House. Clint Watts, do you believe that your communications are monitored or have been monitored either by U.S. intelligence forces or by overseas intelligence agencies? I assume so. You know, in a certain context, I've traveled overseas before. Uh, I, I know in, in certain countries, just in terms of their cyber capabilities and, and authoritarian regimes in particular, they tend to monitor very heavily. That, that's whether you're in Southeast Asia, 
China, you know, Europe, whatever it might be. I, I always kind of operate under the assumption that when I'm particularly in a foreign country or accessing through Wi-Fi when I'm traveling, that I'm putting myself at risk because that's it's just different. The standards of uh, of surveillance are different in different yeah. countries. In terms of the United States, I can't say that that's the case, but I've definitely yeah. had hacking attempts against me and, and institutions that I work for. Clint Watts, thank you so much for being with us and for all your insights. Clint Watts is a former FBI special agent. He is currently a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Uh, he also is a senior fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University. You know, Lisa, at the beginning of the year, $1 would get you 3.74 Turkish lira. Ooh, how many would it get today? Yes, good question. 6.91. That is a drop in value of more than 80%. Dr. Winthin is the global head of emerging markets FX for Brown Brothers Harriman. He joins us now. Dr. Winthin, were you able to call this decline? in the value of the Turkish lira? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, yes, I've been bearish on Turkish lira for most of this year, um, but I think the speed of this decline is, is greater than anyone imagined. Uh, why? Well, I think in general, markets are surprised that there's been a total lack of action by the policymakers. Um, if they had come in and allowed the central bank to hike rates, uh, take some orthodox measures, uh, we wouldn't be in the situation where we are now, I think. But by waiting so long, the situation is really close to getting out of hand. Um, and, uh, you know, at this point, the sky's the limit. All right. So when you say close to getting out of hand, what's a worst case scenario? And how much should investors in other parts of the world care? Well, luckily, well, let me answer the second part first. Uh, you know, luckily, I have been downplaying uh, the, the notion of contagion. Uh, I mean, if you look at EM, you know, we've been in a bear market for EM for for uh, really much of this year, and so you know I tend to shy away from contagion. I think we, you know we have rising U.S. interest rates, we have rising global tensions, we have economic risk from China. You know, those are all very negative for EM. So my what I've been telling clients is that well, within this bearish EM backdrop, we've got uh, five currencies that are, are have idiosyncratic risks that are underperforming. That would be Turkish lira, Argentine peso, Brazilian real, Russian ruble, South African rand. So if you hold any five of those currencies, then yes, I'd be very concerned. That's the bad news. The good news is if you look at your wonderful WCRS page, you see here to date we actually have the Colombian peso and the Mexican peso up year to date. Malaysian ringgit only down 1%, proven sold down 1.5%. So there's definitely divergences within EM, and that to me sort of speaks uh, less of the sort of contagion and more of uh, sort of divergences within a bear market. Do you believe that there are going to be any surprises from European banks that hold large amounts of Turkish debt? Well, we know uh, already from uh, ECB that uh, there are several European banks that, that have exposure to Turkey. But, uh, you know, if we talk about systemic risk, I, I don't think it's big enough, for, uh, a big enough, that big of a concern. Uh, certainly there'll be, uh, again, idiosyncratic risks to certain corporates, certain banks. But in terms of a widespread systemic um, you know, 96, uh, sorry, 97, 98, or 2007, 2008 type crisis. Uh, I really would downplay that. I don't think we're as leveraged as we were back in those days. Uh, the fundamentals in many of these countries are, are better. 
you know, of course, I always hesitate to say this time it's different, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to kind of go on a limb and, and, and say uh, and downplay the systemic risk. Well, just to be Debbie Downer, what would you have to see in order to change your view that perhaps this does have more potential for contagion? Uh, well, I think we have to see uh, some greater knock-on effects, I think, to global growth. And, and in that respect, you know, Turkey is, is no China. Uh, it's one of the larger EM countries, but it's, it's, it's by no means a heavyweight. Uh, we have uh, several other EM current countries that are much more important to the sort of the global supply chain. Uh, you know, I think the, the, the one sort of uh, big unknown is the sort of geopolitical uh, risk. I mean, in that respect, Turkey certainly punches above its weight. Um, but, you know, again, it's, you know, I, I think the, the banking systems in, in the developed world are much stronger now uh, after the crisis. Again, you know, we've been through a, a multi-year period of deleveraging. Uh, again, that's not to say there's not going to be individual victims, individual casualties. But, again, I'm, I'm at this point downplaying the systemic risks. All right, downplaying the risks. What if there is some political repercussions in Turkey because of this? Uh, in terms of its relations uh, with the West, or with or relations internally with the government of er of uh, President Erdogan because of increased inflation, or because of the inability of the country in order to import its necessary fuel obligations. Well, I will say this: um, you know, in some ways, Erdogan is lucky this happened after the election because you know, obviously there's going to be a terrible pain. I went back and looked back at the, the two major crises Turkey, Turkey suffered uh, in recent years. In 1994, uh, we had a 70% devaluation. That year, the economy contracted 5%. Um, back in 2001, uh, the lira lost, I think, uh, 70% of its value, uh, and the economy contracted about 6%. So at the very least, I think the, the risks of a hard landing are there. Uh, the way things are going, uh, if we're going to the brink. We're going to have a hard landing. We have a recession in Turkey, a spiking inflation, corporate defaults, um, and probably some banking failures. Yes, yeah. that's very bad for Erdogan, but he, lucky he just got reelected, so he's, he's safe for the next uh, four or five years. So if, and one of the things, if you get your crisis, you might as well get it early in your term. Well, he certainly has a crisis on his hands, uh, but he's got plenty of, plenty of uh, runway to, to go there. Dr. Winthin, thank you so much for being with us. It's always a pleasure having you. Dr. Winthin is Global Head of Emerging Markets FX for Brown Brothers Harriman in New York City. Another day, another announcement of new tariffs. It is hard to keep track of which country and which asset class commodity is getting hit. Arlen Suderman is going to help us understand where we need to be focused right now when it comes to the commodity market. Arlen uh, is chief commodities economist at INTL FCS Stone, uh, or rather INTL FC Stone, based in Kansas City, uh, Missouri. Thank you so much for being with us. So, Arlen, just we do hear about President Trump doubling tariffs and Turkish steel and aluminum, Russian sanctions. Obviously, we have the escalating tariff off with China and the European Union, uh, although that's cooled a little bit. Which set of tariffs so far have had the greatest impact on commodity prices from your view? Well, certainly the uh, trade war with China has had the biggest impact. Uh, China is the largest importer of commodities overall. They tend to set the tone for the world. And uh, to, to lose that market is certainly has the, the biggest impact. 
Well, they might lose a certain market, but what about the market for energy that's made by the United States? Hasn't that changed things? Well, it certainly has. And we saw, as Bloomberg reported on Friday, that uh, China lifting the tariff, the uh, retaliatory tariff on crude oil, I think really shows the significance that the United States plays now in the global energy markets. And I think it also shows a crack in the armor of China. Uh, Their economy cannot afford to see inflation pressures right now. Uh, Even some of the social media within China, uh, we're seeing some uh, resistance starting to come up from the general public. Uh, comments that uh, the soybean cargo from the United States that was holed up in their port for about five weeks uh, trying to get unloaded, uh, that all this is going to end up costing the consumer. So there are some signs of the cracks in the armor there in China. I don't expect an end anytime soon, um, but uh, it's still the big player. The big question, Arlen, is at what point will all of these tariffs significantly slow global growth? And I'm particularly talking about uh, the tit-for-tat that we're seeing between the U.S. and China. What's the answer? Well, I think we're seeing it already in China. The U.S. numbers are still strong. Uh, China and the United States are certainly big players in the world market. Uh, China has an influence on Europe as well. And so I think as we go forward and we look at the fourth quarter, we'll probably start seeing some numbers. I think we'll probably, in my opinion, we get a trade deal probably negotiated somewhere in the November, December time period. By that time, we'd probably be starting to see some effects on global economic growth. But if we get a deal in that time period, then I think some of the other trading partners that we have spats with start to fall in place as well. And we start picking some momentum back up again in the first, second quarter of next year. Arlen, what can you tell us about the soft commodity complex specifically when it comes to soybeans and wheat and corn and how their prices have just tumbled? I mean, soybeans down nearly 20 percent in just the last 60 days. Oh, it's really amazing since we're setting record exports this summer for this time of year. Now, the fall is our big export season. Of course, China is a big part of that. Uh, But with uh, China being the only customer really for Brazil, Brazil has a captive customer, their prices are running about 17, 18 percent above U.S. prices. So the rest of the world's coming to the United States for soybeans and will likely continue to do that as uh, supplies become tight in Brazil this fall and right in to uh, probably late January or February when they have new crop supplies available. Uh, corn and wheat are really little affected by this, so they're really caught up in the current. And if you look at the numbers from USDA on Friday, they were really pretty positive, even though we had a bigger corn crop than expected. We're still seeing domestic stocks decline year on year and just-in-time supplies, and global stocks are falling at a fast pace. When you look at the major exporters of wheat in the world, supplies are are near 30-year lows at around 14% stocks-to-use ratio. But corn and wheat were pulled under by the tsunami of selling and soybeans, did some chart damage. I think at some point uh, the trade starts to see the disparity between them and uh, starts to trade appropriately. Arlen, is there a commodity that you think has really big upside or really big downside uh, going forward that people perhaps aren't pricing in? 
I think long term, the big story is in corn. And I think corn and the energies come out the winner in any trade agreement we have with China uh, coming maybe at the end of the year or early next year. Corn supplies globally are just-in-time supply, heavily dependent upon U.S. production year in and year out. And and uh, we're continually falling short. Production is falling short of demand. Then if you throw China in there with their move toward uh, a 10% ethanol blending mandate by 2020, they're rapidly building ethanol production facilities there. They do not have enough production to meet that demand. They'd like to clear up their air ahead of hosting the next uh, Olympics. And uh, they've got some real shortages of corn. They're rapidly moving through their reserve supplies, and they need to get this trade deal done before they need to start importing corn. And I think corn's probably the long-term winner once we get a trade deal with China. Thanks very much for being with us. Arlen Suderman is the chief commodities economist for International FC Stone, talking about corn. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's public investment fund had approached Elon Musk going back almost two years about taking Tesla private. This according to a blog post by Elon Musk, the founder and the president and chief executive of Tesla, also happens to own nearly 20% of Tesla shares. Here to tell us more about this potential investment is Matthew Martin, our Mideast finance reporter for Bloomberg. He's based in Dubai, but he joins us from London today. Matthew, thank you very much for being with us. What can you tell us about the interest that the Saudi Arabian uh, investment fund has has made in Tesla. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Um, look, I, I think the um, the public investment fund really embarked on a, a, a very strategic shift about two years ago. Uh, it used to be very domestically focused and investing within Saudi Arabia, and then under the new uh, rulers in Saudi Saudi Arabia, the the, the onus came on the fund to start looking at investing outside um, and, and start trying to diversify the country away from uh, the reliance on oil. And obviously, you know, one of the big biggest oil exporters in the world. So they're looking at ways that they can diversify around that. And I think, you know, as we've seen from um, what Elon Musk has said, uh, as long ago as two years ago, they had identified Tesla as being part of that strategy. And uh, I think we're seeing the Saudis now being very interested in the electric vehicle space as uh, as a way of hedging against the country's obviously huge oil exposure. Um, so I think, you know, we're going to see the Saudis being very keen on seeing uh, this transaction go through uh, and, and, and very keen on playing uh, a big role in Tesla's future. So, Matthew, you said it's, that Saudi Arabia would be very keen on seeing this transaction go through. Are you talking about uh, Tesla going private as this transaction? And if so, why is Saudi Arabia only committing to a 5% stake of Tesla uh, when there's a lot more up for grabs? Well, so yeah, I think they what we've seen them do is they've quietly built up this stake um, of five percent, um, uh, just or just under five percent to avoid having to disclose uh, what they've been doing. So they've quietly built that up in the market uh, in the background while they've obviously been having these conversations with Elon Musk. Um, and now I think um, now that the potential is there for a deal to take Tesla um, off the public markets, um, the the PIF is very keen to be part. 
part of that. And you know, I think the the, the question now is going to be how significant um, an amount, uh, how big a check can the PIF write to support Elon Musk's plan of taking Tesla private? Yeah. Um, you know, clearly with the the sort of patient sovereign capital that the PIF has be- behind it, they're much, they're, then they're going to be interested in the sort of um, short-term uh, volatility that we've obviously seen in Tesla stock and uh, and are making a much longer-term bet on the future of electric vehicles. Right. I guess that, um, Matthew, there has been a lot of skepticism about how serious Saudi Arabia's uh, sovereign wealth fund can be if SoftBank, which it's partnering with for a lot of its assets to invest, uh, has basically said they're not interested in Tesla. And when you have a lot of mainstream large producers of cars getting into the electric car business, in other words, they're big competitors for Tesla, and they actually have shown that they can produce the cars that they promise to make. Do you have a sense of sort of given the fact that SoftBank is not interested, how serious Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund could really be? The impression that um, that we've got speaking from sources close to the the, the Saudi fund is that they are um, are very serious about this transaction, um, and uh, and yeah, and they do see this as part of building that strategic portfolio, hedging their oil exposure. I think in terms of the the relation between what the Saudis do themselves through PIF and what they also do through the very big exposure they have to the SoftBank Vision Fund, um, I mean, look, I think you know clearly the two of them cooperate a lot in some ways. Um, And I think this is one of those instances where um, their views are probably going to differ. And I think SoftBank and and the Vision Fund thinks that it it has, to some extent, made its bets on uh, on electrification. Um, But the PIF is uh, is keen to go further on that and and, and do some more. And, you know, I think I've had this discussion with other people as well about, you know, Obviously, there is a question of, you know, why not get exposure to another car manufacturer, which is also um, uh, uh, other car manufacturers, obviously also exploring um, creating electric vehicles. Um, And sure, that opportunity is there. But I think if you look at the kind of the ambition of the kingdom um, around the new crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, the the way he talks about the sorts of investments they want to do is they want to be, you know, this is a 32 year old a guy who's you know ultimately d- directing the fund and its investments um and he wants to he wants to take very big and aggressive and headline grabbing bets and so you know putting a big stake into uh something like tesla um fits into that character profile probably a lot more than um than putting some money into an established car maker that also has a sideline in electric vehicles Matthew, just quickly, give you 20 seconds. Is there any evidence to support that previous investments that are similar to this in nature by the investment fund have been successful? Uh, very early to say. This strategy is um, two years old, um, so um, you know I think we've still got to wait a little while before we see whether they can um, ride this out. But clearly, the appetite for risk is very, very high. If you look at also taking stakes in companies like Uber, um, uh, you know, and Tesla, you know, these are companies right. which are not big revenue generators yet, but have that promise to be in the future. Right, Matthew Martin. Thank you so much for being with us. Matthew Barton is Mindy's finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. 
I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.